Hey there, my tightrope community. Have you heard the news? We are moving all of our tightrope content to our Patreon. In order to keep our show independent and ad-free, keeping ourselves able to say what we want, when we want, to whom we want, we are asking our incredible audience, that's you, to please extend your support to us by going to www.patreon.com backslash the tightrope pod and please become a member of our patreon community here in this new location we will continue to bring you our full-length episodes exclusive opportunities to interact with us on a regular basis and also some behind the scenes content so we really really hope you'll join us on patreon and we appreciate all your support we'll see you there soon hi i'm bitch landrew and i'm on the tightrope we are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? everyone. Thanks for joining us on The Tightrope, where we engage in a love and justice-infused dialogue, and we try ever so hard to keep our balance on tough issues. I'm Trisha Rose, and I'm here with my dear friend and co-host, Dr. Cornell West. Hey, Cornell, how you doing? Always a blessing to be in dialogue with you, my dear sister. Always, uh, always. It's a pleasure indeed, and we are so fortunate today to have a fantastic guest. We have Mitch Landrew, an amazing politician, lawyer, author, speaker, CNN, political commentator, educator, and as you may, may know, he served as the 61st mayor of New Orleans from 2010 to 2018 and was an important critical figure in, in surviving the city surviving Katrina. Uh, and, and has done many other things, which we'll talk about with him today. So thank you, Mitch, for joining us. We're so delighted to have you and welcome to the tightrope. Thank you very much. You don't forget father of five beautiful children. I, I just, I was going to get to it. I was going to get, yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to leave them out. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm doing great. Dr. Gross, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And Dr. Brother West, thank you for having me. It's great to see you again. I love you. You know that. Well, I love you right back. And of course, we want to invoke our dear sister Cheryl. He couldn't do it all by himself. I couldn't do any, I couldn't do any of it by myself. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so, I, I want to just begin by acknowledging that our dear brother Mitch, he's not only one of the uh, visionary and courageous politicians, but in the context of the electoral political system, that's always a challenge. But he's also part of a... Uh, a legacy of political royalty. Mm -hmm. That when you talk about Moonlander, you're talking about one of the uh, uh, the fighters against white supremacy, willing to take a stand in the state house against the hate bills. Then, as mayor, embracing all of the black talent coming out of New Orleans, and then opening the door to the Morials and others. So that I, so that to situate brother Mitch. You got to connect him to Moon. You got to connect him to Verna. You got to connect him to Mary. He comes out of this family. Sly Stone says it's a family affair. Yeah. Well, it's mm. a fa family affair with Brother Mitch. So I just well, want to begin on that family note, no, brother. I don't Dr. Know. West, I thank you for that. But can't forget Dr. Norman C. Francis. Talk about family. 
my daddy uh, went to law school in 1954 at Norman Francis, one of the first African-American young men to ever go to law school in Louisiana. They met like the first day and they became friends. And Moon married Verna and Norman married Blanche and they grew up and they had kids together and all of our kids grew up together. And so much of my life has been formed by uh, Dr. Norman C. Francis, who for many of you, you now know that he was the longest serving president of Xavier University, HBCU, and one of the great leaders and really like my second father and somebody that he and his wife and his kids have been formed and blessed our life along with so many other friends. So uh, since we call on our family members, actually you were like this, Dr. West. When I was 11 years old, Norman picked me up on Saturday and threw me in the back of his car and drove me to Lafayette, which is for people who are, who are geographically challenged in South Louisiana, sat on his mama's porch and had my first pot and cup of okra gumbo. Good mm. And his brother, and his brother, by the way, was a Catholic bishop. And we sat there and they, my, and I still remember it. I can remember how it smelled. Remember how it tasted. It was wow. good too. Wow. And if you hadn't had over gumbo, all you people from around the country, you need to get get some. You're, you're missing well, but we out. Gotta, you're missing. We got to go to Lafayette to get yes, the proper. You yes, you do. You can't yes, just go do. anywhere to get that. Oh, man. You got to go to Jennings, Roanoke, mm. <laughs> Evangeline you... Parish. Yeah, right, right. How, how did you how, tell, tell me, and I'm sure uh, Cornell knows much more than I do, but tell me how your family came to be such uh, progressive minded people and, and humanizing people on questions of race in the South. I mean, this is, there are of course many people not to, you know, unilaterally imagine otherwise, but I think your history seems particularly powerful there. How did this happen? Well, it's, it's a great question and thank you for it. And, and again, before I start, I do want to give Dr. West, um, you know, great, great kudos. He always talks about the fellowship. Um, as does as does Reverend Barber about whites and blacks together uh, doing what we can. Um, you know, my dad, my daddy's story really is the one um, where it comes from. He grew up on Adams Street, right across the street from a cemetery. His house was about, I don't know if it was 15 feet wide and it was probably about 60 feet deep. His mama had a third grade education. His daddy worked for the public service um, and, and had an eighth grade education. And in that neighborhood, my father, he, he even tells me, he says, you know, when I was walking around, I noticed that, you know, we talked to white people and called them Mr. and Mrs. And when they're African-American people, we called them by their first name. And he said, I always as a kid thought that was strange and interesting. And then he kind of jumps up. And, and when he gets to Loyola Law School, he meets Norman Francis. And Norman Francis, to my father's telling, and he's completely right, is better looking than my daddy, smarter than my daddy. Faster than my daddy. <laughs> both and my daddy. Good and my daddy. Both and my, good yeah, they're both, both good looking, but you know, they were competitive. <laughs> and 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 they started, my, my father and Norman fell in love with each other and, and got to be best of friends. And that began to form my father's real-time consciousness mm. with the issue of race, because he would be like, I want to bring Norman to, to a party. And they were like, Well, Moon, Moon black, no, nobody blacks coming into this party. And he's like, Well, what are you talking about? And he, he my, I asked my father about this. I'm like, you know, why did you fight for Norman? And he said, I was fighting for Norman. He goes, but I was fighting for myself too. Because mm -hmm. Norman was my friend. Norman was valuable to me. Norman was making me better. And it, that's kind of how, of how he started to wake up into it. He, uh, he gets married. Uh, he was in the JAG Corps. He and my mama uh, drive up to Washington. He serves in the Pentagon for two years uh, as a lawyer. Has my older sister, Mary, that became a United States Senator comes back home and runs for the state legislature. Now, my mama, by this time, has four kids. 
my mom, who's a saint, had had nine kids in 11 years. Okay, she's a beautiful woman. She's still with us, and so is my dad. But my mother was uh, was pregnant for me when my father had gotten himself elected to the legislature. And it turns out one of the first votes my daddy was asked to take was a vote to keep uh, segregation alive uh, and, and to honor Jimmy Davis's pledge, segregation forever. And he was one of two white people that voted against it. And he told me, he said that night when he got in the elevator of the hotel he was staying at, that Willie Rainick, who was a, a, a terrible white segregationist and Leander Perez, Dr. West, you will remember, uh, pinned him up in the corner and said, we're going to get you. Um, and they and they basically threatened him. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, my mother was uh, pregnant for me. So that that's kind of how I can't ever remember a part of my life where we weren't somehow affected by or involved and informed by. And, and, and I tell you, it's been a great blessing of, of our lives that really our family would have never been able to do anything politically were it not for the love and the nurture and the support of the African-American community. And it's been a rich blessing in our life. And, and you know, we haven't always been perfect on the issue. Um, everybody gets scared from time to time. But I mean, it's been clear from where I live and how I grew up and in the neighborhood that I grew up in, which was the same one. My mom and dad live in the same neighborhood where I was born. That whole transformation, when people moved out, we stayed. My older sister, Mary, was, was uh, we went to St. Matthias Parochial School. When she went there, that school was 100% white. When my little brother, Maurice, who was the youngest of nine, was at that school, he was the only white kid in the whole school. Now that's that's, that's kind of how we, that's how we grew up. My backyard, if you came to my house any day, whether we were playing football out in the street or in my yard, my house was the place where every neighborhood kid came to play. And I still, to this day, when I'm walking down the street and I see another old man who looks like me, he said, Mitch, remember that time when I took you to the poop when we were 10? <laughs> it was that kind of thing. Yeah, or better yeah. yet, and every kid, now you know what I'm telling the truth when I tell you this, we were playing football on the street, every kid wanted to go deep. Nobody wanted, <laughs> nobody right. wanted to go three and out. Everybody was like, right. I'm going deep. <laughs> running across the street where there's stop signs, trying not to get hit by a car and running in the garbage cans <laughs> while we're playing football in the street. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, is this is this the neighborhood called Broadmoor? Yes, sir. Broadmoor, oh, Broadmoor. legendary Broadmoor, produce some high quality folk on so yeah, many man, different levels. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. It wasn't when you're growing up, you don't know about it. But uh, when I get to the legislature, the state senator, uh, Andrew Plessis, grew up two doors from me. Ann and I used to walk to school together, but she was going to the public school and I was going to the parochial school five blocks further than that. Right. Oliver Thomas, who was a council member, Jim Singleton lived in that area. Congressman Bill Jefferson, who lived right down the street on on Marengo Street, all in that kind of central city, in a city, on the street, asphalt, hot, southern, you know, neighborhood. And uh, that's kind of where we grew up. And that's where we learn all of our values. I mean, every everything. Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, as I recall, though, your father also got that phone call with a death threat in 1970 when sure he is. was about to become mayor. So there's a whole wave of these kind of vicious uh, threats, attacks. Uh, you know, Dr. Webb, hatred, hatred is a, is, a, is a terrible thing. And, um, you know, people want to scare you into not doing stuff. And, and I don't want to say you ever get used to death threats, but my life was threatened when I was 13 years old. Um, mm. and so I, I, you don't ever take them lightly cause they're serious and people mean it and they follow through from time to time, but it's just, it, it, it almost is a 
kid, you get to thinking that's just kind of the way people are going to be. Um, and you take it for what it is, you protect yourself the way you would, but it's just, it's so, it's so, uh, it's so mean. I write in the book about this death threat. There was a lady named Sylvia Pizzo. She was a white lady that used to uh, run up, you know, in all the council meetings and yell and scream and hate for one, one afternoon um, I was at school. The principal came and got me, uh, which is not the first time, by the way, I had to go to the principal's office, but it's the first time the principal came to the class and got me <laughs> and said, Hey man, I need to walk you across the street because there's been a death threat. And uh, I, it was for basketball practice. I was a terrible basketball player, but somehow I made the team. And I was, I was uh, in a gym and, and my friends came and got me and said, this lady's outside, this lady's outside. She's threatening to kill you. And, uh, and, and so I walked outside and my friends did what friends do. They stayed, they, they like got behind me. And, uh, you know, this lady was just yelling at me and she reached in her, in her purse and all my friends said, oh man, she's got a gun, she's got a gun. And they all kind of jumped behind the bushes and she picked out a card and she had all this crazy scribbling about your card. And she said, your father's an end lover. He ruined the city. And she said, she, she threw the card at me and said, he's the worst person I've ever met. And she walked off. And I can actually remember when I was 13 thinking, besides being angry at her, I was just sad because she was so not present in her mind. I mean, I know I, I, she, I should have been scared of her and I was appropriately, you know, backed up, but I was more, I was more sad. And that's, and that's when I remember, you know, just kind of thinking about her humanity too and just saying that you know people are just challenged um unnecessarily and and we have to find a way to get to them you know Absolutely. you you raise you raise a really interesting uh component of this problem which is that you know a lot of what i'm what i'm imagining is the case is that a lot of white people would do more the courageous thing and stand up for racial justice but there's a lot of fear because the same threats that you were getting they might be getting and, and so, do, or do you think it's mostly that they just enjoy the privileges and want life the way they know it uh, and that they just police the perimeter, people like you who are really trying to push out of that, um, but that there aren't that many? Well, what, what do you uh, think is more, more true? You know, when you said that, I started thinking about the letter from Birmingham that Dr. King wrote, mm, yeah. you know, and, and how, you know, what he talked about was the, the people that hurt the most were the people that were supposed to stand up and did white and black. Who, right. when he turned around, weren't there when they needed to be. And so some of us are more courageous than others, and not all of us are courageous all the time in our lives. And so there are the serious kinds of fears from people threatening to hurt you. I mean, in some instances, succeeding like they did with Dr. King and, you know, like they did with uh, Robert Kennedy and, and so many others that have been taken from us. The chastisement that people think that they would feel and the isolation by being kicked out of their social circle sometimes is more compelling um, that, that, that grabs their silence than it is mm -hmm. a traumatic threat. You know, the fear that you're going to get ousted. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. West knows this, you know, when people start uh, like the, I mean, we paid a price, you know, like um, white people would be like, well, the Landrews are really not part of us they're traitors in, in in a sense and right. so we don't really like them and and you know you go to you go to the place where you're getting your hair cut or, or the or, or you or the or the hairstylist so you walk into the locker room everybody knows what it's like in the barbershop you go into an all-white barbershop they talk a certain way you go into an all-black barbershop they talk a certain way you know who who which one of those folks in that in that barbershop is going to tell their friends man you know what i don't like the way you're talking my friends, it, it takes a lot of courage for people to do that. We, we absolutely need to do it. But that peer pressure that people feel mm -hmm. in a little church that they go to, the little ball club they belong to, the little card game, right. 
you know, that they are part of, you got to be willing to say to your friends, hey, man, I don't, I don't live that way. And, and, you know, you asked me about how we came to, to think the way we think. Because of our relationship with the Francis kids and because I grew up with other kids of color, when my white friends at the Catholic high school that I went to would start talking about black people and they would start saying things like, well, they don't love God, they don't love the country, they don't work hard, they're not good. I'm like, well, not the people I know. My personal experience gave, gave put a lie to the myths that those guys were telling me and because of my personal experience, I knew it wasn't true. And on top of that, I knew that, 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 my, that my friends of color were actually, as, as Norman was with my father, better than me. And when there was a competition, you know, I, I couldn't sit there and say that just because of my color, I was better than them. That's, that's the life that I lived. And so that's why I think for people being together and to see each other and to know each other helps you if you're anyway halfway human, right. if you can see the truth, then your heart's got to open up to that person's humanity. Right, right. That, that's, right. What it, that's what being in close proximity, as Brian Stevenson reminds us, being proximate to it, that's what it does for you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't let you create this myth that you can't see and you can just make up stories about that are not true. Right, make that's, up stories that's, about, that's about them and yourself. <laughs> Both. That's powerful. Well, that's, I mean, we lie. I mean, we look, look, denial is a strong thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and that's why it's hard to talk to white people about race too, I think. And I'm struggling with, with trying to figure out how to do this in a way that, that brings, you know, folks to us. But I'm, I'm starting to really kind of understand that there's some things that are too painful for people to admit and to remember, which is why reckoning, acknowledgement and reckoning is so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, there are mm-hmm. moments that wake us up that we can't turn away from. Mm-hmm. Like George Floyd, can't turn away. You can't turn away mm-hmm. from that. You can try. Mm-hmm. You can try to explain that away 15 different ways, but you can't, right? Mm-hmm. But you know so, what it's also, Brother Mitch, I remember when I first met you, though, man, because you know my people from Louisiana, too, Jennings <laughs> and Hamburg. My father, you need, you need to come home, my brother. Yeah, no, I'm always home, home now in the spirit. I'm I always know. home in the spirit of Louisiana. No, I'm just taking Louisiana spirit with me everywhere I go. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I, I when I first met you, though, what, one of my first impressions was, I said, you know, this brother's a soulful brother. And by soulful, what I really meant was you had a vulnerability and you had a sensitivity and an openness. And no group has a monopoly on soulfulness. But when you are immersed in a Black context in which they are both suffering, but also themselves open to others, embracing others. And then you decide. So you have to courageously decide, I'm going to take a stand so I'll be both vulnerable, but also be consistent. So people see your deeds. They see your words. They see your works, your witness. And that's how, I mean, that's how you end up with the Black support. That's why in this moment of Black Lives Matter, your voice has become even more powerful because like Bill Bradley and other Vanilla Brothers who are just so genuine and sincere about keeping track of the humanity of others, especially black folk, you surface with power though, man. And so mm, that, well, that, that, that I think is also very important to highlight. Yeah. I, yeah. Thank, I thank you for that, but that's, that's because I've been blessed to know and to be with um, people of color since I was really, really young. I remember when my daddy was, uh, I used to run around with him on Saturday mornings when he was mayor, I'd jump in the back of his car and he would run around, I'd go everywhere with him and I'd meet everybody he met. And I remember on Sunday being at, at the, uh, the, the Catholic, the black Catholic church on second street. And I, re- and I can remember sitting in the pew and being transformed by the music 
and the songs and looking the, and looking at the love and the caring and and the joy um, that the the parishioners in that church had and how welcomed I felt. And throughout my entire life, I, I, I know white people can be nice, and, and I'm not saying that we're not. Sure. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is this though: uh, when I got to be a, my neighborhood transformed from being an all-white neighborhood to being a mixed neighborhood to being everybody black except the Landrew neighborhood. <laughs> it was a safe, wonderful place to be. And I had dear friends and wonderful friends. And when I ran for office, every district that I ran from had a, had a substantial African-American population. And I could just tell you, I knocked on every door. I remember what doors look like, you know, when, when I meet, meet people. But I can tell you that feeling open and welcome in neighborhoods that were poorer and by definition in the South, blacker, was a lot more comfortable than walking around rich white neighborhoods when you knocked on folks' door and they wanted to know why you were bothering them. Right. I just, it was a different, it was a different feeling, a different vibe, yeah. a welcoming yeah. and openness and a joy. And, and I tell white people a lot who are afraid. I'm like, look, I don't know what you're watching on TV. You do not need to be afraid of black people, number one. Number two, uh, when, when we become a majority minority country, you don't need to be worried either because black people are not going to be nearly as bad to us as we were to them. And if you want to, if you want to prepare yourself for the future, you need to learn how to be part of, not not separate and distinct, but part of, indivisible with. Yes, yes. You know, liberty and justice for all. Indivisibility—that's a word that is very American. Frederick Douglass talked a lot about that to us. And and the person I tell you, who who just to me just makes my my soul sore when I read her writings is Isabel Wilkerson, who in the warmth of other suns talked about how many people left. And then in cast in the last chapter, if you, can't, if you haven't read it, read it, where she begins to explore what we've lost together because mm -hmm. we've, we've mm -hmm. disassociated ourselves, we've become alienated and what we've lost because we haven't lifted each other up. Right. But the hopeful part of it is if that's true, how much do we have to gain if we can find the pathway back together? See, that's exciting to me for America. Yeah, yeah. How much better mm -hmm. we can really be if we really get our hands around this and do this in the way that Dr. King, you know, told us yeah. that we should. That's, by the way, yeah. consistent with what the founding fathers said. So who, who, who the real patriots are? And then I'll finally end with this. And I get, I get a little bit upset. Hank Aaron, as you know, passed. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, then, and then we celebrated Jackie Robinson. And when we do that, you know, the epitaph says, you know, they were so fantastic. They were so great. They showed us the right and their life was so hard. What I want to know about white people is why we just don't say, well, why did we make it so hard? And yeah, we want to we want to give imagination for overcoming, but but where were we in in that development? Were we lifting them up or were we tearing them down? And okay. and I think that should help form our consciousness about well, right. if we want to do it a new way, then we have to change. And all right. of us are susceptible right. of change and redemption right. and resurrection. I mean, that's what it's about, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So you you started um, you you your organization, the uh, E Pluribus Unum, is really about this very this very agenda, right? I mean, yeah. tell, tell us a little bit about well, that. I got out of being man. And you know, that's a, that, that is a, that's a, that's a tough hustle every day, all day, everybody's, you know, eating on you. You can't go to the store without somebody yelling you about a pothole. And, and it's a tough mm -hmm. job and rebuilding a city is, is really, it's really kind of the toughest job going. But when I finished doing that, I wanted to really focus on the issue of race because to me, you know, slavery is, is, is this nation's terrible original sin and race continues to be to this day an Achilles heel and it permeates everything that we do. And I have come to the conclusion in my short 60 year life 
that unless and until we go through this, not over it, not under it, not around it, but you got to go through it. We got to see it. We got to know it. We have to understand our history. There has to be an acknowledgement. There has to be a reckoning. And then there has to be a transformation. Unless and until we do that, I don't think that we're ever going to be as great a country as we can be. And I think I think there's a lot of evidence to support that. And it's um, one of the things I learned in the monument, uh, the taking down the monuments, that was so many white people who were against it. S some of them were, were, were really hateful racists, but not all of them. Many of them did not know the history. Now, why they didn't know the history is important. And there could be some contempt for that. But my mother, who I told you is going to be a saint, said to me, son, I read your book and I assumed that everything in it's true. And I said, yes, ma'am. I didn't, there ain't no lies in that book, mama. And she said, well, you know, they never taught me about that. They never really taught me about the lost cause. They never taught me about the civil war and the roots of it. It was just a war against the states. It was fought for economic power. That's why in the book I said, history has rendered its verdict that the civil war was fought to destroy the country for the cause of preserving slavery. Let's just say that. And slavery brutal. was brutal, lynching, rape, family separation, forced labor camps. Let's say that. Let's not call them plantations. Let's tell the truth about what happened. And let's talk about reconstruction. And then after that, let's talk about the fact that the Klan came back and threw everybody out and then made it hard for everybody and has had their foot on their neck forever. And so that's why we wrote the report that's called Divided by Design. And the conclusion, I think, is, is not controvertible that we are the way we are because the institutions that we have today, political, social, educational, religious, are designed to create the consequence that we have today. And if it's misdesigned, then you just got to go back and redesign them. Absolutely. Now, that, that, Absolutely. Can sound, that doesn't sound radical to me. It sounds like common sense. It would be like if you, if you misbuilt your house and you had a problem, you need to go fix it. You can't, yeah. you can't just change the carpet. Yeah. And so yeah. And that's what, why we what, started that work. And, and what you're able to do, too, is exemplify the legacies of the Elijah Lovejoys and the Little Maria Childs and, and the right. John Browns, the white brothers and sisters who were fighting against white supremacy with an integrity uh, and a constancy. And that, that, that makes a difference, because a lot of times these, these days, people want to cast it in such a Manichaean way that they just assume that all the white brothers and sisters somehow were on the white supremacist side and yeah. all the black folk were, were, that's were, not were true. Frederick Douglass's. Well, that's not true. Truth. I mean, you, but, well, you talk about this a lot. The truth about this thing right. all the way through. And I know, I know you got to run, but you know, I, I do want to acknowledge um, your precious mother's rich legacy, the Italian legacy. I'm thinking yeah. of uh, Tony Bennett. You know, we just discovered that he's been wrestling with this Alzheimer. And oh, uh, my goodness. his whole formation had to do with Brother Frankie, the black Frankie in the yep. army, standing with him. Yeah. Pearl Bailey bringing right. him on stage. He said, right. I'm not going to be in any way away from account. Basie, Tony B Bennett yep. representing this rich Italian and it particularly uh, with, with the Italian tradition was able to be consistent. In the world of the arts, yes, I sir. You majored yeah. in theater. In part, I did. Uh, I did. Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett. <laughs> Tony Bennett's uh, uh, one of my great heroes, just from a performance art, but also he was always there from the beginning too on this yeah. issue because he never forgot his roots. And I tell my Italian That's friends right. who put a little That's money right. in their pocket who want to be conservative and forget about this issue that one day you were at the back too. And you know, my people are, are from Sicily and from Malta way back when, and went in the eighteen nineties. 
you know, they, they got killed, too, in a riot. They, they got accused of, of killing the Irish police chief. There was a trial. They were acquitted. You know, a mob stormed the jail, dragged them out of there, hung a couple of them and shot a couple of them. So I'm mm-hmm. saying to my, my Italian, my, the people that went before me, let's not forget. <laughs> That's right. You know, when everybody starts passing and you want to pass just because of the way you look. And Tony Bennett, I mean, what can you say about the guy? I mean, back in the, in the 50s and 60s, he was he was where he needed to be. Um, and he's a he's a brilliant, wonderful guy. And, and he's, you know, uh, he has left a legacy that that's incredible and incalculable as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he sure is. Well, we know you you have, you know, somewhere to be, which we're not surprised about. Everybody wants to be with you and to learn from you and to, well, to work with you. And we are really grateful that you found some time to be with us. And, you know, you're welcome back anytime. The tightrope has your name on it. So well, I would like to come back and just say that, you know, for, for all the people that are struggling out there, we're at a point, though, right now, uh, we're in an inflection point in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think the pathway is clear and it's a time for choosing. Um, it, there's not a whole lot of gray about what we need to do in this country in terms of addressing white privilege, um, really trying to get people to think about what a great future will look like and how there's no question that if we do it together, we're gonna be much, much better than if we isolate ourselves and separate ourselves. That's not what God intended us, intended for us. It's not, it's not where we find our richness. It's not where we're gonna find the beauty in each other. We ought to be running towards each other, helping each other, lifting each other up. To me, that's where the future of America is. That's where her history is, clearly, if we remember all of her history, not just some of her history and in, and in narrow parts that are, that where we have myths that we rely on. And like, you know, when you say make America great again, you're going back to a past that never was. Um, right. and, and even the little pieces that were that way, they shouldn't have been that way. So instead of building it back the way it was, let's build it back the way it should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time. Right. You know, the idea of America is a beautiful idea if we could get it right. We hadn't gotten it right yet. We got to <laughs> keep, keep trying. So anyway, I'll leave you with that. And I love you guys. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'd love to come back. Excellent. No, Anytime. Indeed, indeed. No, love and respect you, my brother. Thank you, Mitch Thank you. Fantastic Thank you so to have much. you. Take good care now. All right. Wow, he's got great energy, huh, Cornell? Yeah, That's he, very he's, nice. He's, he's such a good brother. He really mm. is. He's just... Got a lovely, lovely spirit and energy, but he's and he's been consistent all these time, all these time ever since yeah. I met him. It goes yeah, all the way back. Yeah, he's quite committed, and I, you know, Absolutely. I wish next time we have him on, I want to talk about Katrina, New Orleans. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was know, hard to get everything in in that, no uh, way. In that right, 25, right. 30 minutes or so. And yeah. in fact, but but it, I was glad that we had a chance to talk about. Um, him and his family's fights against white supremacy and yeah. the, the humanistic sensitivity that he yeah. had. Yeah, you know what? One thing he said that I, I thought would be interesting, I'd love to hear you your thoughts on this, um, was when he said that uh, he wasn't just fighting for his black friend who, you know, uh, who he wanted to bring to the party. He was fighting for himself. And, and what I find, I find that really interesting because it isn't just a kind of altruistic, you should let him in. It's also, if you understand, in other words, his friendship uh, transformed him, him and therefore the rejection of his friend was really a rejection of him. And that's the kind of relational um, racial dynamic that has the chance to unlock this problem, I think. That's true, that's true. And see, part of it is, uh, from my point of view, is that all of us, in some sense, need to be saved from ourselves. 
because mm. there are elements inside of each and every one of us that's t- tied to cowardliness, that's mm. tied to arrogance, that's tied to uh, callousness. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can get safe by yourself is usually by the help of an other. Mm-hmm. Like he was following his mother and his father's example. He was right. he was tied to his close partner. He wasn't going to betray mm-hmm. his partner. And that right. that, that that wonderful story bet- between uh, Norman and Moon, the older generation, just close friends, no matter what. Right. And friends, right. at their best, always bring out the best of us. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you know, the bedrock was, you know, as he said, all that you know, deep relational building. So while everybody was engaged in white flight, they hunkered down, you know, which is an amazing thing to choose to do. There's a lot of costs, a lot of costs. Very, very true. Um, But uh, he's full of energy and, you know, uh, hope he, hope he goes back into, you know, politics in some way. Cause you know, if we can keep pushing this boat a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more, you know, <laughs> I, he look, he looks like somebody I want pushing my boat is what I'm saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? We need to bring him back. <laughs> I keep pushing that boat. That's yeah. All right. It's heavy. It's a heavy boat. We still pushing it. Um, That's the truth. That's yeah. Yeah. The truth. Well, it's been great talking with you Cornell you know I always adore talking with you so this is another another installment of a, of a, of just you know hearing what's on your mind did you want to say anything before we close out the tightrope today no I just think it's a beautiful thing that we can have uh focus on Louisiana nothing yeah. like that state Bertha Jazz mm. Irene Clifton West mm. T Rose Mm. Lovey O'Gwen, that's the West Clan coming out of Jim mm. Crow, Louisiana. That's where I wow. come from. So when did your, was your grandparents who went to Sacramento, tell me a little bit about your migration. Uh, well, we went from Louisiana to, to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where we were you know, there in the same hospital as the Wilson Brothers of the Gap mm-hmm. Band. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Black Wall Street. That's where mm-hmm. uh, That's where I was born. I was born in, in Moton. Mm. Moton Hospital. All mm. chocolate. All the way down right across from Green, Greenwood, Archer, and Pine. Gap. Mm-hmm. G- Greenwood, Gap Archer, and Archer, and Pine. Archer, and Pine. Black, G-A-P. Yeah. Where they yep. dropping bombs on folk. And yearning. Sure yearning mm. for love. Mm. Outstanding. Outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> and then so so uh, and, and so then we, made, uh, we, then we went to Pika, Kansas. Mm-hmm. To Pika, Kansas. You see, see, my brother was part of Brown v. Board, uh, the historic uh, legal. Really, system. Cliff was part of Brown v. Board. Oh yes, yeah, Sister Linda was his close partner. Linda was the uh, was a major. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. that yeah, Cliff was there. I used to follow him to school because he's teaching me to read and things. Where mm-hmm. Topeka, my, my sister Cynthia was born in Topeka, and then we went to Sacto. I, I was four and a half, five years old, and grew up in right there in Sacramento. So, yeah. how often did you go back to Louisiana? Did you drive? Did you fly? Did you take a bus? How like what's that every, journey like? Every summer, mm-hmm. every summer, every summer. Lord, Lord. Yes. And you went to see the whole extended family who was we went mainly to see every went to Orange, Texas. We went to. Tulsa, and we would always stop in Lake Charles. Mm. 
Lake Charles, Louisiana. Well, that's a heck of a culinary spot. Yeah, oh, you ain't lying. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, there's no food like New Orleans. Ooh, no food, food like Louisiana. That food will change your life and turn your world upside down, boy. East for sure. For sure. <laughs> for sure. Now, wow. You, well, that's. You've had a chance to spend some good time in uh, Louisiana. You know, I have just, just New Orleans a couple of times. And, and oh, actually, okay. uh, uh, Andre and I went to um, the Essence Festival that was in New Orleans the year before Katrina. So we were at the Superdome, literally the uh, a year before wow. to the, almost to the, yeah, it was wow. the last time that I've been there. Um, and, uh, but you know, it's a special place that there's a special place. Uh, I was just curious about how much time you went back and forth. So many people send their kids back home for the summer, right? Oh um, yeah. And yeah. that's, there's a whole, I think there's a whole book in that, you know, what, what that's, we know what it's just officially about, see relatives, get out of trouble right. or stay away. But, but there's something about this kind of renewing one's cultural frameworks and backgrounds and roots that, uh, that I think was, was more important than just a sort of a convenience. Um, oh, absolutely. No, our, our souls, hearts, minds got shaped by uh, that Southern culture. Mm -hmm. No doubt. And it was Jim Crow. I remember, you know, we had to go to the top of the theater and uh, they so had what, the railroad track right. right in the middle of the uh, You seem too young for that, Cornell. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh. so when, what year are we now? What, what year? Tell me, I'm not, you know, my Ooh, math is challenged. We would return so. beginning in 1958. We'd oh, go every okay. summer from 1958. Wow. Were you afraid? I mean, no, Sacramento, no. you weren't afraid. No, 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 no. No, shoot, we going there big and bad. We had a little singing group singing since I lost my baby by the temptation. Make David Ruffin have a smile on his face after we finished that song. All the sisters wow. coming at us like I was Teddy Pendergrass. You know what? what I mean? So I wasn't afraid at all. You weren't afraid at all. You were like, come I on, let's wait. get down. Let's get let's get this show on the road. <laughs> let's do our thing. Come on. Cousin Andy oh. gonna be playing with us. Cliff, my brother. Oh shoot, we had a thing down Louisiana. We had a little wow. reputation down there. Wow, wow. Yeah. So what we have to talk about Cliff and Brown v. Board of Education at some point. Oh that's, yeah, that's, no, that's true. That's yeah, fascinating. That's true. that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is great. Well, we we put a little spin on even Landrow's, you know, Louisiana. <laughs> I think we we put our own little spin, Cornell. You hooked us up with that. That's. <laughs> added some some serious details there um, so it's great to be with you i'm so great to have all of our friends and family and and uh the tightrope community hanging out with us here on the rope um, i think we might have to call it the rope every once in a while just made that's, that up but i thank everybody fresh word fresh word <laughs> fresh word uh thanks everyone for joining us we're so delighted you're here and uh don't forget to subscribe on youtube and uh, you know, listen, wherever you listen, we love hearing your comments and seeing your tweets. And also special thanks to all of you who've joined the Patreon family, a lot of great uh, comments and dialogues going on there. For those of you who want to join that community, uh, visit www.patreon.com backslash the tightrope pod. And uh, we got lots of fun things there, exclusive content and, and conversation going on. So we look forward to seeing you all next time on the tightrope. Dr. West, you know, it's a pleasure and honor and a privilege. And I will see you next time on the tightrope too. It is always a blessing, my dear sister, Tricia. Yes, indeed. All right, everybody. We'll see you again next time. 
Hey there, my tightrope community. Have you heard the news? We are moving all of our tightrope content to our Patreon. In order to keep our show independent and ad-free, keeping ourselves able to say what we want, when we want, to whom we want, we are asking our incredible audience, that's you, to please extend your support to us by going to www.patreon.com backslash the tightrope pod and please become a member of our Patreon community. Here in this new location, we will continue to bring you our full-length episodes, exclusive opportunities to interact with us on a regular basis, and also some behind-the-scenes content. So we really, really hope you'll join us on Patreon, and we appreciate all your support. We'll see you there soon. Bye-bye.